There are a lot of people who lie and get away with it. Over the North Atlantic, toward the east coast of the United States. President Kennedy died. This week on Inside Jobs, Brian Jean and Lee investigate the CIA drug trade. A complicated network of stakeholders with wildly varying agendas, from fighting communists in Latin America to getting a record deal in the Marcy Projects of Brooklyn, resulted in the surprising and mythologized explosion of crack in America. Joining me to discuss the CIA drug trade are civilian investigator Eugene Freeway O'Neill. Hello. And conspiracy expert Lee Golden. Ricky Ross. I'm historian Brian Lane. Welcome to Inside Jobs. Uh, guys, this is going to be... This is, gonna, this is an episode right here. Yeah. yeah this, I tried to find should... some... Go ahead. I tried to find some crack in preparation for this episode, but I could only uh, get a prescription uh, for some ADD medication. So I'm not going to be as yayed out as I was hoping. Okay, that's close. So you're you're on notice, Lee, but okay. you know, good try. <laughs> All right. Um, but but Gene, sorry, you were about to say something. I don't even know anymore. God, who does? <laughs> Dude, so much crack. <laughs> yeah. Um, this episode, what we have before us is, uh, one of the more complicated topics that we've ever tried to, uh, to, uh, tackle. And before we started recording this show, we were having a discussion about what to, to call it because it's just all over the place. This is an international, um, multi-government agency, a lot of interesting personality kind of story that goes all over the place. But luckily, I don't have to <laughs> describe it all because we are in the hands of Eugene O'Neill today. I think the title yeah. should actually just be Bedtime for Bonzo. <laughs> I chose this topic not just because I thought it was interesting, but mostly because I thought it was going to be easy. Uh, <laughs> unlike the Jesus story that I tried to cover and then uh, Iran. the Bible. Um, yeah, and uh, actually Iran was very easy by comparison because uh, this whole story ties in with the Nicaraguan revolution, which mm-hmm. is itself a very complicated story with a lot of facets. Yeah. yeah. So, so I guess... How far back do we want to go? <laughs> well, because today is April 20th, uh, which is uh, today not only uh, Easter and uh, 420, the, the day of smoking pot, but it's also... The day also, that uh, Hitler killed himself by smoking so much pot. <laughs> it's all, Well, it's also Hitler's birthday, so I think we have to go back Lord God, Jesus Christ. to January 30th, 1933. No, um, we should go back to actually, 1912. We could go back even further if we wanted to. We could. Let's we, go back to 1912, like when we actually occupied Nicaragua. <laughs> well, let's let's kind of sum up uh, for people who haven't listened to some of our other episodes. But uh, we have been covering a lot of these uh, these uh, topics where the CIA got itself involved in another country's affairs, uh, hoping to clandestinely bring about regime change. Or uh, a better um, 
a better environment for American business interests. And in South America, we've already covered uh, the, the CIA coup in Guatemala. But uh, an important backdrop to that is simply you know, talking about the history of the United States involvement in the Southern Hemisphere insofar as the Monroe Doctrine. Um, this is basically a, a, a policy decision that uh, James Monroe made where he basically looked at Latin America and, and made an announcement that if, the, if European powers thought that they were going to get involved with any of the countries in the Western Hemisphere, that is basically um, south of the United States, so Latin America, South America, the Caribbean, uh, the United States would militarily prevent that from happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, carving out that sphere uh, for United States intervention exclusively. We literally had a manual about small wars that the Marine Corps had that was basically like how to do this. It was such a part of our foreign policy. It's um, there. There are a lot of interventionist, uh, you know, historical episodes from the 19th century, including, uh, you know, coups in Honduras and um, uh, Cuba or attempted coups in Cuba that were financed by people like Cornelius Vanderbilt's uh, a lot of people that were called um, uh, oh gosh why is the word escaping me what is what is what is the 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 when you speak a lot uh, in, in Congress in order to delay a vote oh, filibuster 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 used to mean uh, a type of piracy and it was um practiced by a lot of businessmen and mercenaries yeah. who would go down into south america uh and filippo uh, alberto buster was the man who invented it <laughs> <laughs> um but uh they would go down and try to overthrow th- uh, people there's this uh, famous guy uh william walker who was you know briefly uh the the president of el salvador uh in the 1830s i believe it was um but yeah uh the united states has a lengthy history of uh meddling in south american affairs but uh gene maybe you want to uh, pinpoint us to a point where uh our involvement in with uh, the contras and the sandinistas is uh really most important Right. Uh, well, let's for basically from the 1930s through the 1970s, Nicaragua was run by the Somoza family. There was mm-hmm. uh, basically a, a father-son combination yeah. here. Uh, and even no, when they weren't president, they were behind whomever the president was pulling the strings. Right. Kind of like a... Medici a, family. A, sort of like a Putin sort of back then. Yeah. Um, like So like even when a, they would have to legally you know uh through elections let somebody else run it was always somebody that they were basically pulling the strings on um so finally then uh during the 70s uh the Somoza family is just insanely rich they're the biggest landowners in Nicaragua they're the richest family and their what is regime... the, what, are, what are they making their money off of what is what is like the main export of the business interests um yeah Nicaragua is purely like an agriculture export um economy and they just they own uh most of the land and most of the exports uh, so, co- so like coffee and bananas yeah and then and then also just selling selling numerous concessions to uh u.s companies mm-hmm. they're getting concessions the like uh hot dogs uh cracker jacks 
<laughs> uh, like infrastructure stuff, like you know, okay. roads, telephones. Um, ah. So uh, anyway, roads, that... get your telephones here. Telephones <laughs> and roads, concessions. So, through by the late seventies, the regime is getting just especially violent. Um, just like a lot of uh, reports of torture and rape and murder are coming out. And Where did they learn get, that, Gene? Well, they must have just learned it from themselves, those damn savages. <laughs> they certainly didn't learn it from the United States. Uh, ah. I should also note here that the Samosas get most of their power from the National Guard. They're kind of like the uh, Savak uh, of Iran that we discussed a couple weeks ago. It's basically a U.S.-trained uh, army, an elite army. Um, trained by Kirstie Alley. Trained by Kirstie Alley. Uh, that really keeps, you know, uh, the Samosas in power through intimidation. These are they're being trained at places like uh, the School of the Americas in Georgia, right? Yeah, yes. Um, and then also by the Argentinian death squads that we also trained. But I guess that's a topic for another episode. Um, <laughs> yeah, about the rap group Argentinian Death Squads. But I heard the Samosas actually made most of their money from the Girl Scout uh, cookie trade. Uh, yes, that and um, alcoholic brunch bre- uh, beverages. Right. That was also the tag-along uh, and Thin Mint regimes. <laughs> yeah. Gene, Gene, you're thinking of mimosas. Oh. <laughs> so, samosas are uh, like an Indian uh, pastry. Uh-oh. You're thinking of br- you're, you're thinking of brunch in West Hollywood. Man, that's why everyone looked at me weird when I threw that tantrum at that restaurant last week. Because <laughs> you couldn't get samosas. I want a samosa, goddammit! I was promised bottomless samosas. Uh, all right, where was I? Okay, so finally, uh, Jimmy Carter... Poor beleaguered Jimmy Carter, <laughs> history's most embattled president, um, ba- separates himself from the Nicaraguan con- uh, from the from the Samosa regime, and uh, tells them that they have to have some actual free elections that are clearly rigged. Uh, and Even though there was uh, international observers there who declared that it was a free and fair election. Uh, isn't that true? Actually, Lee, no, you're jumping ahead. This is oh, okay. later when the Sandinistas are having elections. Um, right. Oh, okay, are, right. Yeah. So uh, this, the FSLN, otherwise known as the Sandinistas, uh, this before then they were kind of like uh, you know Castro's guerrilla army. They um, kind of came to power through a lot of kidnappings. They would kidnap. <laughs> You know, entrenched establishment politicians, and then hold them uh, ransom, and then hold them ransom, and this is how they funded themselves. But they, you know, they were very popular with the peasantry. Um, so they have elections, and the Sandinistas basically win the elections. Uh, and then shortly after this, Reagan uh, becomes president, and Reagan's foreign policy is a very sort of his cold, at least his. Uh, his com is what is it? His communist foreign policy is a sharp turn from Carter, or even you know, and uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, you know, who kind of practiced a sort of detente policy. Yeah, you know, basically, want- uh, basically, f- c- kind of Nixon's pivot when uh, Nixon went to China uh, kind of established uh, a 
a trend in American foreign policy in approaching the two major communist superpowers in the country. And this was via, um, you know, in, in a sense, uh, tacit co- uh, business cooperation bet- with China in order to uh, cause the Soviets to have to adhere their foreign policy to those business concerns. And then the same thing with the Soviet Union in order to coerce the Chinese to do other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, this whole period is called detente, and it's a period of – that is that is typ- that is typified by uh, less foreign interventionism, less uh, military interventionism around the world in order to antagonize the Soviets. Uh, you'll notice that there are major exceptions to this, like the tail end of Vietnam, uh, right. the, the Vietnam conflict, and uh, of course there were a lot of during the seventies. There were a lot of armed uh, um, and uh, terrorist or. Uh, actions that the u.s was involved with but this was definitely a period where the united states was able to focus on other aspects of competition with the soviet union yeah reagan's plan was uh, and to be clear the two major uh communist superpowers at the time were the soviet union uh and the jimmy carter administration (laughs) (laughs) um uh um so the reagan's policy or at least the policy that was sort of architecture during his administration was to actually ramp up spending to aggressively invest in anti-communist forces in the third world and other parts of the united uh, other parts of the world uh and build a laser space station and yep. name it after star wars uh well actually the star wars term was uh, was applied by detractors because they were worried that not only would this technology not work but if it if it did work, like if if this laser was able to create an impervious shield uh, to nuclear weapons entering the United States, that it would actually uh, ramp up the ar- arms race so bad that uh, both the United States and the Soviet Union would eventually spend themselves in, into collapse. Right. And the Soviet Union would just create a comparable system and call it the Empire Strikes Back. Um, but uh, OK, moving on. <laughs> um <laughs> But so basically, Reagan kind of had this swagger as he entered the presidency and his his rhetoric was more uh, militaristic. And it was really it's if you take away a lot of the polemic used by both sides, the the in the United States of the Republicans and the Democrats, uh, Reagan's policy was actually a very interesting strategic shift uh, when you're looking at the Cold War. Uh, as a broad, lengthy, you know, severe interconnected conflict. Um, but it did result in a lot of things like we're going to talk about today, which is a lot of unintended consequences. When when you are getting text messages during the show and you don't have your phone on silent, it really causes problems. Uh, it's not a text message, actually. It's a, a notification from MLB app. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, not that you would know about any non-Nazi related things. Yeah, I'm just assuming you're getting Uber or something. Okay. Um, Brian only has a the Nazis are back in power alert app. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't gone off since 1933. Yeah. Oh, well, no, it went off uh, one time when the, the Bush administration came into power. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in Ukraine. 
Um, okay, right. Good point. No, but so basically the, the, the Reagan policy of uh, investing heavily in armed conflict abroad, especially in places like Afghanistan, um, Angola, which was a disastrous and just brutal civil war that lasted for like 25 years, and in, Coca-Cola. in uh, the Cola Wars, uh, but, but especially for the topic of today in Nicaragua. Um, these became places of focus for uh, military and paramilitary, paramilitary elements of the United States government to heavily invest in order to fight communists or suspected communist organizations. Yeah. So you know, what's interesting is that you know we've discussed how the fight against communism was you know largely a mask for uh, uh, you know facilitating a more uh, American business-friendly environment, but Nicaragua, even after the Sandinistas came to power, and you know, yeah, the Sandinistas had a communist, you know, streak. It was still they were more of a like a populist organization. Yeah, and it was still considered very friendly to U.S. businesses. Um, after the regime change, it didn't really affect uh, a lot of the U.S. businesses stationed over there, including uh, one of our favorite companies, Monsanto. Uh, who you know spoke pretty glowingly of uh, the Sandinista government, um, but I guess Reagan still saw Nicaragua as you know if these guys you know if these guys flip, it's going to be you know kind of like uh, you know JFK's domino theory um, in Southeast Asia that if Nicaragua started started to turn you know soon every every country would and I, I don't know they imagined that it would happen in countries where U.S. business still wouldn't be able to, you know, conduct without a, um, you know, without a hinge. Um, so Reagan sees this location as uh, a new front for the Cold War and for his aggressive policy against communism abroad. Uh, and so what does he authorize done in Nicaragua? So this is where things start to get very murky because uh, much like with the Iran-Contra scandal, it becomes a question of, well, how much did Reagan or anyone in his cabinet know? And how know? much did they shred in document shredding machines that jammed up because they were shredding so many documents? <laughs> and how much did they shred in jam sessions? <laughs> <laughs> with fish. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just kidding, folks. That's not something they did. Um <laughs> Okay, so basically, uh, the Contras get something like. Oh, so okay, I'm sorry, jumping ahead here. Uh, the, the deposed Somoza regime uh, basically sort of retreats to, I don't know, the mountains, metaphorically speaking. Um, and they become known as the Contras, short for counter revolutionaries. And uh, they get. Some fun, they get some funding from the CIA for something like twenty million, but it's kind of considered by the White House to be not enough money. Yeah. Um, Most of the so, power that the Contras got was from using the Konami code before they pressed start. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was basically impossible to come to power with only three lives. You needed at least yeah. thirty. <laughs> really, it was really hard. <laughs> uh, so Reagan basically tells. Uh, you know, his National Security Council, that the Contras need to be kept together, body and soul. Um, and one thing that complicates this is that, uh, you know, early on, the Contras start mining the Nicaraguan harbors uh, <laughs> and right. blowing up several ships, 
which you know naturally d- disseminates to the international press, and it just look and you know it just looks very bad for the administration that they are backing basically terrorists in uh, Nicaragua. So, because as opposed to the Sandinistas who would like kidnap people uh, as part of their program, they would just murder them, right? You know, and the Sandinistas were definitely not without. Yeah, they weren't good guys. They weren't really good guys either. Yeah, Um, this is a typical story in these kinds of uh, intercessions that uh, the CIA and the U.S. government gets involved with. It's like, uh, you know, if you look across the world during the same period of time in Afghanistan, uh, we were funding the Mujahideen, who eventually became Al-Qaeda. Right. If you want Um, more information about that, see Rambo 3 and the Living Daylights. (laughs) But like we had seen in Iran, like I guess what happens when you you know try to maintain your ethics uh, in the face of a coup, like um, you know Mossad, Mossadegh did, you know, and then he ended up getting overthrown uh, and imprisoned. Uh, but so then anyway, getting back to the Contras, um, following the the harbor mining uh, controversy, uh, Congress passes what's called the Boland Amendment. Basically, restricting funding, uh, the CIA's funding to uh, Nicaragua. Um, and so, this is like when Reagan basically tells his, you know, national security cabinet, like, that the Contras have to be kept together, body and soul, was his quote. So, essentially, and, figure out a way to get around this right. congressional oversight. Yeah. And so, it's at this time that uh, two. Two of our key figures in the in the crack epidemic of California come into play, and that is Norwin Meneses and uh, Danilo Blandon, who are both uh, Nicaraguan exiles living in San Francisco. Uh, Norwin Meneses was a drug kingpin in Nicaragua and ran a car theft ring. His brother was the uh, chief of police in Managua, and he had two brothers that were generals in the National Guard, just a very politically connected dude. And he basically just ran a huge drug empire with impunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, to show how powerful he, to give you an idea of how powerful he was, um, when there was uh, once a customs probe into some uh, cars that he had smuggled from North America into Nicaragua, he had the chief of customs murdered and there was no investigation. Shit. <laughs> nothing happened. Jesus. Um, this guy just did whatever the fuck he wanted. So he's living in uh, San Francisco now, and he is basically, he becomes the head of intelligence and security for the Contras. And he is put in that position by Enrique Bermudez, who is the leader of this group, and he is also a CIA official. Um, He is basically told, we need money, so figure something out. So he meets Blandone, uh, and then Blandone was the head of agriculture exports. In Blandone, a lot is made of the fact that Blandone was like a, a marketing expert. He had a degree in marketing and came from a, a business background. Yeah, if you ever watched The Wire, Manessis was basically, uh, fuck, what's Walter his name? White. Yeah, Walter White. <laughs> Blandone was basically Stringer Bell and... Uh, Fuck, and then Manessis was the other guy. I cannot believe I can't remember his fucking uh, name. Don Draper, the marketing yeah, Don guy. Don Draper. <laughs> um, Any of the forgettable cast from The Walking Dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the guys that died. 
so yeah, they get together and they start basically import basically all the cocaine that uh, Manessas was getting from the Cali cartel in Colombia and selling Nicaragua. He was now just bringing into uh, San Francisco. Um, at first, they're actually having trouble moving all this cocaine um, for whatever reason. And they 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 actually uh, in order to get it to, to into the United States, they have a very complicated. Uh, 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 transportation network uh, that involves, uh, you know, uh, flights going in and out of various uh, ports of call, basically, in the United States, Mm -hmm. up through Mexico, into Florida, into where, like, uh, wasn't wasn't there one location in, like, Denver? Um, Yeah, and then midway through, uh, one of the guys would slap a little bit of uh, crack into the hand of Ronald Reagan right as he would slap a $100 bill into the other guy's hand. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, very discreet. Um, But yeah, (laughs) he didn't didn't know about it, though. They were. They were. (laughs) (laughs) He shredded all of that. He was not buying crack. Right. He he shredded all of that crack through his nose. But they did have, uh, as you said, a lot of difficulty uh, basically selling off all the kilos of cocaine that they were able to transport into the United States. Yeah. So finally, partly, partly because it was still very expensive and it was, it was whack as well. Yeah. Cocaine was no cocaine was not yet crack. So it was not yet whack. Right. Oh, it was was known as this point. Yeah. Cocaine was known as the rich people's drug at this point. It was a rich person's party drug. Uh, So, through various intermediaries, Blandone ends up meeting Freeway Ricky Ross, a once promising tennis prodigy who could not read or write, and so he missed out on a college scholarship. And uh, somehow and, and he, got that, uh, he got that hip-hop scholarship, though. Yeah, Rick, Rick Ross was born in uh, 1960. So the period that we're talking about now is about 1982. And uh, keep that in mind over the next, uh, as the course of the story the unfolds over the, over the next couple of years. Uh, like he, this is a 22 year old kid when when he meets up with Blandone and Manassas. Man, 22. What were we doing at 22? Oh, sucking our own dicks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Getting our ribs pretty, removed so we could suck a pretty our own good dicks. Team, I guess. <laughs> I don't know, Brian. What was I doing? I was pretty fucked up. I don't know. I just graduated. I was living with my parents, literally. So living yeah, the high life. Me yeah. too. Yeah. So Rick Ross is living with his parents, and <laughs> applying to Starbucks, sucking when, himself off every day. Yeah. When he meets up with Blandone, and he basically starts. He did not invent the crack process. Uh, turning coke into crack was around. The thing is, is that it was just it was too expensive. It, basically, the process involved using ether to uh, mix with crack and or mix with cocaine and to, to turn it into crack, a rock that was uh, that used less cocaine but still could get people really high. Um, Hold on, let me write this down. <laughs> Rick Ross learned of a technique that was in use elsewhere that instead of using ether used baking soda to turn uh cocaine into crack rock and this obviously baking soda is so much cheaper um this was the process that Rick Ross learned in order to turn you know a mountain of cocaine into a mountain range of crack and then Al Pacino would just stuff his face into it yeah Right, so now, you know, he has all of this 
crack that you can sell basically for $5. And uh, he started selling it to the Crips, the Crip and Blood Gangs in South Central Los Angeles, and just the market immediately exploded. I mean, cocaine already had that reputation of it was the rich person's drug. Um, it and now didn't it, was, have, it, it was cocaine that anyone could buy. Now it was cocaine that anybody could buy. Um, right. And, Even CJ from GTA San Andreas. Yes. The, basically, and, the, uh, the power that Rick Ross uh, had in learning this was that he, he now had two things. He had, a, or he had several things. He had a connection to get cocaine. Also, I wanted to mention that he was getting his cocaine for about $10,000 less per kilo than it normally went, which is kind of why he was able, the, the whole crack thing, he was, able to, he was able to take off. Because he was buying it so cheaply, you know, they could sell it cheaper. Yeah, he had a cheap connection to import cocaine. He had uh, connections with gang members, which is basically an entire infrastructure in order to sell drugs. He had that music video with Drake about Austin Martins. And, oh man, I listened to that song earlier today. <laughs> <laughs> that was your, I was watching C-SPAN uh, congressional hearings and you were watching God Forgives, but Rick Ross doesn't. Yeah, the uh, thing you were watching is Lamer Lee, sorry. <laughs> uh, but then he also had uh, the knowledge about how to convert the cocaine into crack, which was not really widespread. But he started, you know, spreading that knowledge out to, you know, not necessarily franchises, but but different labs where people could then turn this product into crack and then right. distribute it throughout the United States. He was spreading the knowledge through ebooks, but then when you would buy the ebook for a dollar, basically the plan for making money was just to sell the ebooks. Yeah. That's a very yeah. specific joke. <laughs> You'd buy 10 rocks of crack for a penny each. But then after that, you were on the hook for two cracks of rock. The racks of, rocks of crack at full price. God damn it. Fuck it all. <laughs> Fuck it all. Uh, so sorry. So, so Free Ray Rick, Ricky Ross is basically uh, the, the Walter White, the Scarface, the Stringer Bell, you know. He becomes a, a million, multi-millionaire, so, you know, like what kind of year. What uh, do you know any of the uh, statistics about what kind of uh, weight he was moving? Yeah, he was he about was... two hundred and twenty pounds. <laughs> no, he's yeah, a real no, wiry he... guy. Yeah, I think at his peak he was buying about a hundred kilos a week, and he said himself that he would sometimes make three million dollars in a single day. Yeah, that just everything that he got, and then whatever, like he would flip it over in a day. The uh, the network that he was able to build over this, you know, the first couple of years included, uh, you know, obviously Los Angeles, but also a lot of major American cities, New York, San Francisco, Chicago. But he said that he did some of his best business in places like Ohio and um, uh, Oklahoma. Yeah, he actually moved to Cincinnati because <laughs> the it, crack it, capital of America. The crack, it, he, he just sold so well over there. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this is where we want to maybe dip a little bit into the, the blowback, um, but he, like one thing that helped proliferate uh, you know, the popularity of crack and, and enabled Rick Ross to basically set up these franchises all over the country was the media reporting on it. Um, because like, yeah, even though crack was wildly popular in LA and then New York, it was still nationally very confined. It was in a few neighborhoods in Los Angeles 
you know, in San Francisco and New York, but that was about it. But pretty soon, like, you know, once uh, L.A. and, you know, New York media outlets started reporting on this crack epidemic just because it was such a juicy story, it just it started appearing all over the country. And now, like, cities where there was just no crack problem at all was reporting on, you know, an imaginary crack problem just because it was such, you know, it was such great ratings. And because of that, now people were looking for a crack. So Rick yeah. Ross was now moving into these markets where the demand was cultivated by the very media that was denouncing it. Yeah, we should I clarify mean, the, at some point that the Rick Ross that we're talking about historically is not the Rick Ross rapper that I have been joking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we should talk about that at some point. Yeah. Okay, just want to throw that out there. Yeah, um, but um, yeah, the media would get on, you know, people, there would be news reports, and you can see a lot of these on YouTube where, you know, they're talking about this drug that gets you insanely high, uh, that is dangerously addictive, and can be can be purchased cheaply so there are a lot of news elder skulls skyrim there are all these news stories about i don't even know what the fuck you're talking about (laughs) i don't know i'm just being dumb what sort of lord of the rings bullshit yeah basically all that unspent energy that was left over from the satanic panic of uh 80s news media basically (laughs) went into this whole crack epidemic the crack plague um and yeah, as Brian says, you can see these, you can see videos of these on YouTube, and they're kind of interesting to watch as like little time capsules of the eighties. Um, especially, especially because of uh, a couple of specific elements of them. One of it is like how you can basically uh, put these reports right side by side with reporting about, like for instance, in the early nineties, PCP, or, mm-hmm. or today with meth. And see the all the different ways that the sort of scandalous um, reporting about them are the same, and how there's not actually a lot of science behind them. Um, the degree to which uh, crack was getting popular is debated, but it is certain certain that it was increasing. Um, mm. But there's no evidence that it was, uh, as people said, you know, specifically a. A uh, problem that was affecting African American use, that it was making people especially violent. It was, there was evidence that it was fucking great. Yeah, the, the, made, basically, it's like with any drug uh, around which uh, an infrastructure develops. There were different, uh, there were rivals trying to fight over different territories, uh, and the, and subsequent to that, there was violence. the The way that crack was uh, being sold in America was. Basically, it was being sold to impoverished people, uh, but it was also being sold to any uh, any rich person who wanted it as well. The, o- the only difference is that the rich people could get away with it while the police were targeting inner cities and uh, impoverished youths in, you know, Brooklyn or uh, the um, south central part of L.A., yeah, right. and actually, and in- before the really harsh laws came down, uh, the statistics showed that about half of crack-related arrests were white people. But right. if you watched any evening news program, they never showed a white person you know, being arrested or a white person's house getting broken, you know, getting busted down by police. Uh, it played perfectly into you know, white suburbia's you know, black panic psychology. Mm-hmm. And because crack was a, an easy way for people to make a lot of money, I mean easy relative... 
to uh, to a lot of the other to options. Work, to so, yeah, I mean, to give you an to give you an idea, like the lowest level drug dealers would make about three to five hundred dollars a week, which in today's money is making like seven hundred to a thousand. Or no, no, I'm sorry, they would make three to five hundred dollars a day. Yeah, and which would be today like making a million dollars. Well, it'd be like making a thousand dollars a day, and I mean, we're talking like t- you know, very like Unedu- uneducated teenagers. Yeah, uh, if you uh, like, like people, uh, if you want to, if you want to put a face on some of the crack dealers that we're talking about, uh, for instance, Snoop Dogg, uh, Calvin Brodus, Young, um, what, what he was part of the, I think a blood gang, right? Uh, the Sandinistas. Or no, he he was part of the Crips. No, Snoop was a Crip, yeah. Yeah, because he introduced seawalking. Anyway, um, he was... Uh, I thought Jesus invented seawalking. <laughs> <laughs> he was he was like he said he was working some like shitty job like at a grocery store or something, making you know two hundred dollars a week. And then he noticed other guys in his neighborhood started bringing home like two thousand dollars a week by they selling were working crack. At the crack. They were working at the crack grocery. Yeah, and so that he just, uh, he he was like you know what 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 drive is there for me to keep doing this like straight job and making $200 a week when I can be as rich as these other people and have access to all of the things that they have by doing this other job, which is, you know, selling crack. Right. And I mean, Snoop was probably one of the lucky, uh, you know, black youths to be working a grocery store job at this time, because Mm -hmm. I mean, this is during a huge recession and it hits the hardest in you know, the largely right. black inner city and unemployment for black youths was something like 50%. And this was the early days of rap where, th- you know, it was like things were kind of like positive, like, you know, Will Smith was rapping about uh, being a grocer. Uh, so <laughs> it was a little different. You yeah, know the I mean? high life of a grocer. <laughs> I'm a grocer and I'm here to say your savings are on the way because <laughs> oh, you're shopping at Safeway. Right. Even my dad would have done a better rap than that. <laughs> yeah, um, but but there are a lot of uh, uh, these are the jokes. There are a lot of uh, the of uh, crack dealers at this time who later went on to become uh, rappers. So people like uh, uh, Jay Z was selling crack at this time. RZA was uh, selling. RZA, Be Real from Cypress Hill. George H. W. Bush. Um, I'm not sure. He was doing all the crack. I'm not sure if okay. <laughs> uh, Christopher Wallace, aka Notorious Christopher Walken, was selling crack at this time, but he was selling crack definitely later on in the 80s. Um, this was just a way for people to make a shit ton of money. It was like the Uber. There was lift no other often. Yeah. Um, so, so Gene, so we have crack going everywhere, but then what is the reaction to? Uh, you know this so 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 called crack epidemic in politics. Uh, right. So I, I don't know if we want to go quite there just yet. Okay. It doesn't it, the crack epidemic doesn't really repercuss to politics? I, I, I guess I want to note here that um, at this time, like it's becoming obvious that there is a drug trafficking explosion in California um, mm-hmm. to uh, police departments, sheriff departments, and DEA agents in San Francisco mm-hmm. and uh, Los Angeles. Um, 
now this is like mostly through the reporting of Gary Webb we're talking right now talking about right now but like uh, Susan Smith this is like a typical story right here for any uh, anyone doing an investigation Susan Smith was a DEA agent in San Francisco and she starts hearing rumors of basically a huge you know cocaine trade going on in San Francisco and she starts investigating it and uh, she basically hooks on to Blandone and then uh, Manessas and some of like their lieutenants and starts finding evident like basically reports of drug seizures in New Orleans and in Florida. People uh, having were, seizures because they were doing so much crack. Yes. Well, there were particularly cocaine seizures in both New Orleans. In the past year, there were huge cocaine seizures in uh, New Orleans and in Florida. Both times, the cocaine was said to have originated from Manessas' ranch in Costa Rica, but Manessas was never investigated. Um, Isla Nublar, I believe. Yes. <laughs> so then again, uh, a bunch of coke is found basically, uh, or two guys are arrested trying to bring about 400 pounds of cocaine in from, basically trying to swim it ashore uh, from the San Francisco Bay. And again, it's connected back to Manessas. Uh, so she, you know, files like an affidavit for a search warrant to search one of uh, Manessas's lieutenants, and her superiors at the DEA tell her basically terminate her investigation and then put her on. They reassign her to uh, biker gangs in Oakland for like a very <laughs> small time like meth operation. So we're moving from the wire to Sons of Anarchy. Yes. Uh, and, then, and then it turns out that like, uh, one of the people she talked to was a PD officer in L.A. who was also investigating a Manessas ring, and he had had a similar problem. He was basically told by, his, told by his superiors to stop investigating it. And they fell in love. Yes. <laughs> um, and then... Uh, <laughs> Made so the movie she, Rush. She kind of just became very dis- you know, disillusioned by it all, and like a year or so later, this is 1984, she re- retires... Or leaves the DEA, and she tell asks her officers, "Hey, do you want any of these fucking files that I found on all these guys?" And they say no, and they shred them. Um, so it's becoming clear that Manessas has some sort of uh, he's protected protection. from on high. He's protected from on high, like Kaiser Soze. Exactly. Um, so, but then anyway, yeah, uh, the crack epidemic does explode in. Um, Los Angeles, uh, and then uh, Tip O'Neill, representative of Massachusetts, basically after the speaker, the, speaker of the house, speaker of the house, Tip O'Neill, after a uh, new Jean's uh, mom, yes, <laughs> Tip O'Neill, speaker of the house, following the tragic death of a basketball player, his favorite team, the Boston Celtics, had just drafted Len Bias, Damon after, Waynes, after dying from a cocaine overdose. After some malfeasance from Dan Aykroyd and <laughs> Daniel Stern. Uh, hey now. Hey now. Basically leads this impassioned charge that we had. Like, this is like a funny thing. Um, Len Bias had a co- – he died from a heart complication that people believe was related to a cocaine overdose. It would come out later that he just had a heart defect and it might not have been related. But because he was black, it was reported in the media that he had a crack overdose. So this was like our biggest – you know, probably it's like, it's like the Rock Hudson in the AIDS epidemic, right? For there crack, was like, yeah. There was like a here was a celebrity that had sort of died, and you know, it was in the Speaker of the House's backyard, 
And like there was just such an outcry in Boston about she died in the backyard because that's like what the Celtics would just hang out in the backyard of Congress. Yeah, it's like a Tip O'Neill's house. <laughs> so Tip O'Neill basically uh, introduces legislature in Congress to make a new uh, twenty-five to one. Um, I don't know punishment ratio, yeah, which punishment, is basically punishment ratio between crack and cocaine. cocaine. So, so for every one gram of cocaine, uh, uh, and one no, no, gram... for every one Greg gram of coke you possessed, you would be charged as if you were possessing twenty-five grams of cocaine. Yeah, if you if you were caught with crack. Right. This is just the legislature that Tip O'Neill introduced because then Republicans came back and they wanted to look like they were the ones who like. Naturally, you want to make the Democrats look soft on drugs. We're tough on drugs. They come back with 50 to 1. The Democrats charge back with, no, we want 75 to 1. And then finally, that's when we get the new 100 to 1 ratio. So if you were found with a gram not, not of only Sorry, not only is there a 100 to 1 ratio, they also introduced the five-year minimum sentence. So mm-hmm. if you were found with any amount of crack on you, you immediately got a five-year sentence. And then on top of that, Gene, as you were about to say. Uh, and then, yeah, you were charged as if you possessed 100 grams of cocaine. Which... And none of this would have happened if Larry Bird had died instead of this other guy. <laughs> yeah. Because he needed to retire anyway. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, what next? So, so that is basically, an, you know, crack is being punished uh, it's got a stigma with the black community in the United States, with the poor community in the United States, and it's suddenly being punished in this extreme way. Really, stick uh, there's a real big stigma for it. And L.A. has this police commissioner. Is was he the police commissioner? Is this Daryl F. Gates? Yeah, Daryl Gates. Yeah, you yeah. might know him from the Police Quest series of the 1980s and 90s. <laughs> <laughs> he literally there was literally like the I think the fourth game in the series was called Daryl F. Gates Police Quest Open Season. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Gates, you know, is another figure who is on the sort of front lines of the quote war on drugs. And he begin, begins to introduce uh, extreme tactics in fighting uh, the drug uh, trade in Los Angeles. You know, it's a, here's a funny little aside that, like, yeah, because this was where we had the uh, birth of the crash divisions, which uh, <laughs> produced that, that wonderful fucking... movie that won the Oscar several years. Yeah, ago. <laughs> not um, the David Cronenberg movie about people fucking in fire. Yeah, yeah, uh, this is yeah where the origin of the crash division came. Um, but like, what kind of inspired and funded all of like this basically militant police force was the 1984 Olympics. Because the city was like worried that, you know, gang violence or the drug problem was somehow going to, you know, seep into this, into their Olympic, you know, vista or whatever. Uh, Unfortunately, it was not that cool. It was just some fucking Olympics. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But uh, so, yeah, just wanted to say that was a fun little footnote that we have the 1984 Olympics to thank for that. Yeah. so he had Wait, this. Sorry, huge, you were saying about yeah, Daryl Gates. Yeah, um, he had this huge budget in order to uh, introduce new techniques, new strategies, and new technologies in the fight against uh, um, 
new uh, technologies like point and click adventure games yeah <laughs> like uh, <laughs> but into the fight against the drug trade in los angeles and so this is about the time when you start seeing you know news footage from helicopters of police helicopters uh swooping over uh gang neighborhoods in los angeles Showing gang wars of, you know, young black men holding, you know, Uzis and AK-47s and the police being armed with similar rifles and then introducing tanks, you know, armored vehicles that would patrol streets in Los Angeles and even crash into and demolish houses. Um, And that's when they sent in... They sent in Snake Plissken, too, because the uh, drug dealers had captured the president's daughter. <laughs> yeah, that was a really low tie for Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there was a, a strict curfew was enforced in certain neighborhoods. Um, I like how this was literally happening in 1984. Yeah, a very... <laughs> a very like Orwellian nightmare. Yeah, uh, basically any uh, black person on the street could be stopped and frisked. Um <laughs> Uh, what other fucked up shit were they doing? Introduce that battering ram. Yeah, right. Now, like, uh, this is like a thing that, you know, along with the crack epidemic being such a popular, because it was so popular in the media, uh, ABC News started this. They just started sending news teams along on crack busts or, you know, house raids. And one of the executives at ABC said that, the, like, literally said, this is the best, you know, uh, war footage we've had since Vietnam. Um, so news teams were going along, you know, and they, I guess it only kind of played into this pageantry that Daryl Gates sort of, you know, kind of cultivated on his bus. And like, yeah, so we're seeing now tanks literally beat down, you know, crash into houses uh, just to find like a couple grams of cocaine, you know. Of yeah, in, in American cities, uh, in, in a civilian population, Right. Uh, the the, um, the degree to which there was overreach. I mean, we're not saying that there was not a problem uh, with crime in Los Angeles. I mean, Gene mm-hmm. alone is responsible for God knows how much right. craziness. Yeah, God knows how many public urination. <laughs> God this was knows. also the, um, the key after the Keen Act had outlawed superheroes. So only Rorschach and the comedian were out on the streets. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, but, uh, th- this is such an overreach, uh, against that problem that it just turned into a circus for the media, which then fueled, uh, public, um, public opinion about what the police should be doing, which is that like, oh, well, if the police have gone this far, then obviously they're justified in doing it. So they need to maintain these budgets and they need to maintain these special powers. And so when you have things like the Rodney King beating where uh, Rodney King was arrested by cops and uh, when they were absolved of overreach and the L.A. riots happen. Uh, public public opinion is like, oh yeah, well, if the riots are happening, then Gates and the L.A. police force should have the right to send in cur- RoboCop. Yeah, have curfews, send in tanks, mobilize the National Guard. You know, all these sorts of insane things to think about happening in in uh, in the United States. Yeah, uh, one of the things that I guess kind of catalyzed the the overreach was that on some busts they would find enormous stockpiles of automatic weapons. And 
you know, the reaction by police sort of was like, oh, my God, like, if we hadn't gotten these guys by surprise, they were ready, to, you know, for, like, a, a huge standoff. Like, mm. there was this, I, this reaction that, you know, these AK-47s and Uzis and AR-15s were basically to, like, withstand, you know, uh, a raid. Um, but... A lot of times the cops would just come in with a bunch of AK-47s and M-16s and then just drop them on the ground and be like, oh, look what we have here. Because they ran out of – well, they ran out of bullets. So once – and if you ever watched a Chuck Norris movie, once you run out of bullets, you just get a new gun. (laughs) And then then you throw the gun at them. (laughs) You throw the gun on the ground. (laughs) Um, But it – like the thing – I guess the thing to note here is that because the – you know, the crack trade was so competitive um, in the inner city. Uh, and because now these drug dealers were flush with so much money, um, you know, a kind of a, an arms race sort of built up within these communities. Um, you know, and it's you can trace this back to our two guys from Nicaragua, Manessas and Blandone. Um, they were taking a lot of the money that they were making and buying weapons from one guy. His name was Ronald Lister. He was a former. I you were going to say Ronald Reagan. <laughs> yeah, he was Ronald one guy, Reagan. Ronald Reagan. When I was reading, I was thinking about it later. I'm like, I thought his name was Tommy Lister. I'm like, oh my god, is he Tommy, aka Tiny Lister Jr.'s dad? But no, it's <laughs> Ronald Lister, and it's no relation. Uh, um, was related Ronald, to Tommy yeah. Ronald Lister gun. was a. Ronald Lister was a former police uh, detective who was now running a security firm, and he just somehow just got a hold like he and he would sell automatic weapons basically to the Nicaraguans uh, exiles to funnel back to Nicaragua to the Contras. Um, so, I he got connected with Ricky Ross, or they went through Blandone. I don't know how, but like they just started selling weapons to you know, drug dealers in Los Angeles. And Lister would sell like crazy shit. Ricky, Rick Ross said that he once tried to sell him a grenade launcher. Like he just had a crazy stockpile of weapons. Um, so yeah, like now you had, that's what, like you had drug dealers just with AK 47s because they had one, they had so much money. Uh, the weapons were available and you needed to protect yourself against rival gangs. Right. At some point, uh, I think someone tried to sell, uh, sell Snoop Dogg that uh, shrinking ray from Duke Nukem. <laughs> um, so we have all of all of this interconnected web from, you know, Reagan's foreign policy to the CIA to the Sandinistas or sorry, to the Contras against the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. We have roving murder squads in Nicaragua. Uh, Dogs and are, cats living together, mass hysteria. That are being I, that are being funded by cocaine sales from Colombia through the Caribbean into the United States. That then people like Ricky Ross are converting into crack, selling throughout the United States. So Whitney Houston, and and then and we then have that regret. Even scene. dare digress into uh, Iran Contra. Uh, yes, that is exactly what I was trying to lead to. And then we have sort of the. The first public element of this entire weird, complicated web, which is Iran-Contra. Yeah. So while this is going on... Um, Iran-Contra. You know, we can talk if we want to really get into the, to the evidence, but the CIA certainly knows that the drug trade is going on, but it's not really getting... Who knows how much of this is getting back to the White House? For all they know, the Contras are still struggling to finance themselves. Um, at the same time, 
there's a problem in Libya when uh, the Hezbollah Hezbollahs just start taking uh, Lebanon. Groups. Actually, sorry, Lebanon. Sorry, uh, start taking just you know basically any white person they find hostage. So there's just numerous Americans and Europeans. That was also hostage. happening in uh, in uh, South Central. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, Reagan is you know determined to get these hostages released because he's the president that gets hostages released i guess uh so because he, he uses snake Blisken. yeah <laughs> God, who who's he going through with this it's oh it's uh mcfarland robert mcfarland uh seth mcfarland yeah seth mcfarland is head of national security basically authorizes him to uh negotiate with a moderate element of the Iranian government who said... Now, who is- and, and just to, to, to tell people, uh, since the Cultural Revolution of 1979, the United States has ha- has not had official diplomatic relations with Iran. That's still, right. yeah, the, still true the closest today. Thing, the closest thing to diplomatic relations is when a bunch of students took over our embassy. Yeah. Uh, there, there's no official di- diplomatic relations. It's, a re- it's illegal to have them uh, unless you go through a third party like Switzerland or Finland, um, you go through a third party like the Contras. <laughs> right. So yeah. so yeah, Iran at this time is at war with Iraq, which is just another <laughs> where where we are funding Saddam Hussein's weapons yeah. against Iran. Where and, Donald yes. Rumsfeld is sucking Saddam Hussein's dick on national television. Yeah. Oh no, um, they're shaking hands. Never mind. Yeah. Uh, da, da, da. Okay. So. The White House is secretly negotiating with a sort of moderate strain of the Iranian government who's trying to come to power and they want to, you know, try to foster better relations with the U.S. And they kind of make this secret deal with them through Israel that they that Israel will give them weapons or will sell them weapons. Mm-hmm. Then the U.S. will uh, basically, you know, recompense uh Israel for what they gave. <laughs> that was like our main thing. That we were like, "All right, we will sell the the, the, the stuff, but we need the reasonable rate of return." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, in return, uh, uh, the Iranians are dealing with are going to get these U.S. are going to negotiate with uh, Hezbollah to get these hostages released. Right, and these um, arms were like anti-tank missiles, so it wasn't like we were just like selling them guns and stuff. Yeah, no, these were yeah, this these is, were this missiles. It's like serious shit. This is technology that it is illegal to sell to a place like Iran. Yeah, we're, so we're talking we are, technology like uh, RoboCop, shrinking ray guns. Honey, I shrunk the kid's machine. Ronald <laughs> Ray Gun. <laughs> so we're essentially providing uh, missiles to both sides of the Iran-Iraq conflict. Um, so at this time, this is no Reagan, one could tell the difference. Everyone thought it yeah, was the same country. It was one country. At this time, Reagan, uh, you know, according to the record, checks out. He falls asleep for the next few years, Literally. and yeah, and his his NATSEC department basically starts, you know, changing the uh, arrangements with the Iranians here and there until finally Oliver North comes up with the idea: Hey, why don't we just sell direct? Because it starts to get too confused dealing with Israel. They're like, let's just cut Israel out, deal directly with the Iranians, and then take some of the money we're making and just give it to the Contras. And rack up um, the prices like forty percent. Yeah, and they rack up the prices like forty percent. Um, and by rack, you mean jack? Uh, I mean Iraq. I, I'm sorry, Iran. Iran. Now at this time, with the Bolin Amendment still in place. 
the Contras are getting pretty good funding from uh, both the White House uh, arms sales and then through cocaine sales. Uh, and then in 1986, the Boland Amendment expires. The CIA immediately gets budgeted for $100 million to go to Nicaragua. And then all these guys start getting busted. Um, and I think that's also when the, the Tip O'Neill crack laws really start to come down, too. Mm-hmm. Um, that law so, was if you, if you stepped on a crack, it, they would break your mother's back. Very harsh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, Rick Ross, this is when Rick Ross is finally uh, indicted. And he gets sent to prison for 10 years. No, uh, yeah, and uh, the, uh, the questions over the Iran-Contra affair, essentially in the public sphere, were like, did Reagan know? That was the most important thing. Um, and Reagan has this weird, this, these two weird, uh, television addresses where he comes on and he says like, and he hadn't talked to the American people in three months. He was just like radio silence. He, he came on and he's like, at first he's like, this never happened. We did not sell arms for hostages, you know, weird stuff like that. Uh, and then a couple months later he comes on and he says this bizarre thing, which is. Um, I do, it was like bizarrely if, calculated. It's yeah, bizarrely calculated. Yeah. I do not, uh, I do not believe in my heart that we sold arms for hostages, <laughs> but, but the we facts, did. but the facts tell me otherwise, which is just insane. Like he yeah, wants. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, what does that mean? And it actually like works. You might as well because... have thrown air quotes around the words facts. Yeah. <laughs> it actually works because it was like. Facts? America, basically, our stance on Ronald Reagan is like, we believe in our heart that he was a great president, but the facts say <laughs> the opposite. So you have people like Oliver North going to prison over his uh, uh, role in this, but it's not – people aren't going to prison because they did something crazy illegal. Most of the people that are going to prison over this are going over perjury, uh, right. lying to and Congress, every, that sort of thing. Right. Everyone – H.W. the only thing that Nixon was going to be impeached over was perjury, not his war crimes. Yeah. <laughs> right. And H.W., um, he pardoned everybody but like at the end of the day, right? Yeah, yeah H.W. pardoned everyone a few years later. And to yeah. the point where the only person who actually like went to prison for this uh, is, the, is a guy who I think – stole who's a priest or a reverend who stole a street sign named after one of the guys involved in this whole affair and held it ransom for 30 million dollars which was apparently the amount of money that the government made off of this whole affair and he was arrested and sent to prison and there's like a joke that like howard zinn says he's the only one who did any real jail time for this whole thing was a priest yeah Yeah, most Uh, of the most of the guys got probation um and right hw pardoned them all And H.W. said during the campaign in 88 that, like, oh, I didn't know anything about this. I was totally out of sight, out of mind. Um, But then there's this one guy who later claimed that he did brief Bush on this. And Bush's journals, his personal journals actually backed this up. But that dude died in a mysterious plane accident. Yeah. Um, So that is a a weird – like it's it's a huge element of the U- United States hi- uh, history and the cultural memory of the period, and yet it's only a side theater of the, of a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. Um, An almost too delicious bit of irony: uh, Oliver North's secretary, Don 
Hall, I believe it was, uh, who helped him shred just a ton of documents um, on this thing, uh, later moved to Hollywood and became a crack addict. Wow. <laughs> she it's almost, kind of the had, opposite, a, almost uh, had a fatal overdose. Wow. It's kind of the opposite trajectory of uh, Ronald Reagan, who went from Hollywood to the White House. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in terms of uh, the cocaine trade, um, the DEA was subsequently able to, you know, basically stem the tide of drugs that were coming up from Colombia through um, through the Caribbean and through Florida and that were coming directly into the United States. But what happened was the, you know, in the words of a great American, life finds a way. Um <laughs> The Dr. Ian Malcolm, the Colombians w- realized that what they could start doing was transporting co- cocaine through Mexico. And so they began going up through um, Central America and then through Mexico in, across the border into Texas, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, and a lot through California. And as as the DEA and as United States federal uh, enforcement were focused on Florida and shutting down the Caribbean connection, there was basically a field day for the Mexican cartels that then splintered into, you know, various types of cartels, a lot of different cartels that then started the Mexican drug war as we know it going on today. We sure do. Yep. Uh, so that is so that is one element of of you know the drug the drug trade that was affected by this. Um, but uh, d- d- did we sort of cap off Freeway Ricky Ross's story? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Um, he was released from prison uh, after a ten year bit, and uh, apparently Blandone contacted him immediately upon his release to set him up to get some back buyers. in the game get back in the game and ross said no i'm going clean and blandone like begged him please just give me some names some people that i could hook up with and ross agrees to meet him at a mall in san diego and he's just immediately surrounded by cops and he's thrown back in prison for life for a conspiracy to buy and distribute large amounts of cocaine wait who who was thrown in prison rick ross was right um this is something Gary Webb uncovered during his uh, investigation for the San Jose. What is it? Mercury the News. Mer- Mercury News. Yeah. Mercury News uh, was that you know Blandone uh, was this had, before or after he shot himself twice in the head? This was before. Oh, okay. Uh, you know Blandone had like numerous like arrests and seizures, but. None of his property would ever get confiscated, even though there were these like insane, you know, uh, drug forfeiture laws at the time, which basically meant, you know, if you had any amount of crack, the, the you know, the police could take your house away. Um, uh, but it turns out that Blandone was uh, he he got arrested after 1986 when they no you know kind of no longer needed the drug money. He was given a redu- a sentence of. Like something crazy, like he only got four years when mm-hmm. he should have been doing life, and the Justice Department makes a deal with him to reduce it to two years, for, which was just time served that he had already served, uh, on the grounds that he would become a government witness. Um, so, 
getting Rick Ross arrested again was, you know, basically part of it. And he got paid $166,000 on top of this for doing this. But they took it all away because he had crack. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so Manessas never did any time. Um, he, uh, he, a, a warrant for his, like, for his arrest finally went out. Um, but, uh, and he just moved back to Costa Rica. There was no extradition ever. Um, Blandone moved back to Nicaragua. Blandone uh, has, has disappeared at this point. Yeah. Uh, although he, I think he was said to like, he basically owned a profitable timber company in Nicaragua. Like they both basically just returned to the lives they had. Yeah. Nothing ever happened to these two guys. And then uh, Rick Ross uh, became a model prisoner, <laughs> and uh, he was released in 2009. He did a lot of prison modeling, prison <laughs> outfits. Uh, and at which point, uh, two rappers, Philadelphia Freeway and uh, Rick Ross, had uh, taken elements of his name for their rap names, and he, uh, he sued Rick Ross over the use of his name. Unsuccessfully. Uh, unsuccessfully. Uh, Rick Ross was able to Rick Ross the rapper was able to go ahead and uh, release his album uh, under the Rick Ross name, um, mm-hmm. which uh, and which is funny. Gene... There's um you know controversy over should uh, uh, the drug kingpin be allowed to profit off of uh, you know this name that he used while drug dealing while while being. Uh, you know, the, the, the kingpin in the United States, uh, which is sort of parallel to the fact that Oliver North recently was uh, brought in as a uh, story consultant on an episode of The Americans uh, that was about uh, American drug trade in Central America. And he was able to profit off of his efforts there and, you know. He no, got away with to mention his numerous appearances on Fox. Numerous appearances <laughs> on Fox. His sold. candidacy for the U.S. Congress in 1994, <laughs> I believe it was. Yeah. I mean, it was okay, though, because he got paid um, in crack and uh, also anti-tank missiles. Which aren't worth that much anymore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's a, it's a very complicated... Because you can just take out tanks pretty easily these it's days. A, it's a very complicated network of uh, interconnectivity... Uh, between all these different elements. But, I mean, Gene, do you want to... Is there a way that you can sort of sum up what this... what what When we've talked about CIA coups in other countries in the past, it has been more or less linear, you know? The United States wants Iranian patrol, petroleum. They move in and commit a coup, and then the blowback is that Iran falls another way and... You know, we lose our diplomatic uh, relationship with that country. Yeah, and normally the blowback is, uh, I guess, like a lot more removed. I mean, with Iran, it's like that coup was in 1952, and we really didn't see the blowback come to fruition until the Islamic Revolution and, you know, Iranian hostage crisis of, what was that, 79? 79 through 80, yeah. Right, and then, of course, you know, the World Trade Center in uh, 2001 but i mean the way that this it affected america was pretty immediate i mean you had uh the gate like the gang war explosion uh the crack epidemic quote unquote uh which also basically financed uh gangster rap in the late 80s and early 90s um 
the Rodney King riots, uh, which were basically a culmination of this, you know, reaction to extreme police tactics uh, that were themselves a reaction to the crack epidemic. Um, Yeah, and I mean yep. the, the the Los Angeles Police Department is still suffering from uh, a poor uh, reputation and after effects of a lot of the things that they were doing to combat combat after this effects. that spiraled into you know Rodney King and uh, the Furman element of the OJ trial, the Rampart scandal, and on and on. Battle for Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, you mean the Rage Against the Machine album, right? Uh, yes. End of Watch. <laughs> The movie, training day the movie crash yeah uh, uh, yeah i don't know if we'll have time to get into this but like you know if you want to sort of research this more or if you're wondering how come this you know didn't get more attention or, or why did this always sound like an urban legend uh if you want to check out gary webb's uh dark alliance series on this you can still find it online um after he published this uh just this huge hatchet job um, yeah. And kind of straw man attacks started from all like the major press organs, the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and all from reporters who enjoyed very cushy relationships with the CIA, uh, right. particularly Washington Post editor Walter Pincus, who was a former CIA <laughs> exactly. uh, member. It's been said by many people that when Gary Webb's articles about the CIA's involvement and possible involvement in drug trafficking came out, that people put more effort into uh, attacking him than they did actually like looking at what his stories were about. And he never explicitly said that they were or were not. He just brought a lot of evidence to light. And, And history has sort of proven that although he didn't get everything perfectly right, the overall thrust of what he was saying is, is, is pretty on the, the money. Yeah. He did something, you know, that was very new back then. He put links online to all of yeah. his sources, uh, grand jury testimonies, this FBI is, and DEA. Documents. This is like 95, 96 when all of it, this is happening, right? Uh, when, yeah, when he's is, writing yeah, when, about all of this, right? Gene? He right, also exactly. strangely took credit for, um, <laughs> for um, black people starting to use the internet. He basically said black people didn't use the internet until I started writing these articles. <laughs> Seems interesting. Yeah, and the fact that it was on the internet was a way that uh, other writers discredited Gary Webb. They would say, like, oh, a lot of this, you know, talk is on, uh, because, like, after the series came out, it became very explosive on, you know, quote-unquote black uh, talk and TV radio programs. Um, And uh, so he said, like, oh, this is just on a lot of, uh, all of this, you know, information is on the unreliable places like talk radio and the internet but it's like no he, he is putting sourced documents yeah. on the it, internet it, it, not it's just like him going into chat rooms and people are telling him about this. there's a c-span interview that you can watch of him uh, on uh, on uh, on youtube where it's very interesting uh because they take these calls and people are basically all insane but he uh he's like <laughs> people people can, people can go on the internet if they want to see this and when and then he explains what he means by that and it's so crazy that this is what he means they can read through his reporting and when it says this person was quoted from this testimony there is a yeah. link to the transcript of that testimony you know basically putting all of the behind the scenes architecture that you wouldn't see in a normal newsprint article onto right. the internet for people to look up and and sort of analyze for themselves this is a totally new thing at the time and when he reads off the web address 
uh, he has to, you know, repeat it because they won't. Http. Yeah, they won't even slash slash. They won't even flash it on the screen because you know they don't they don't realize how important it is for people to be able to get these web addresses correct. It was crack.cia. <laughs> but yeah, you uh, have but to get an AOL. American you have to get a, an America online CD, preferably one with 50 free hours of internet on it already. <laughs> yeah, you install that onto your computer if you have a CD-ROM drive. <laughs> Make sure your mom is not on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so the sort of sad end of Gary Webb's life is that after this he was struggled to get a job and he was yeah, he was forced to... his paper like he never recanted what he was saying but his newspaper uh his head his editor basically put out a thing saying that they were not no longer backing up his reporting uh and that they made mistakes in publishing it and basically the post and the new york times and even the cia basically took this as a huge admission uh, or i guess exculpation of the cia like oh look like they admitted that he made it all up and uh webb actually you know sent several letters to the new york times and to the post responding to you know their own uh, editorials about oh look at gary webb he was wrong saying like no like i did not say this i did not say this like you know you guys said that uh, Mike, like one of the major things they hammered him on was like, there's no evidence that an American CIA agent knew about this. And his response was like, well, no, but they don't, all CIA agents are not necessarily American. Like how ethnocentric can you get? Yeah. They have, you know, they have operatives in every country and they are CIA agents. Um, so like they, they would like find the, they would kind of find these little points of language to, you know, bury uh, him over yeah, to bury him over. Anyway, he sent these letters. They were never published. Um, and uh, yeah, you're right. He was forced to resign from the San Jose Mercury Times. Uh, struggled to find work after that. Lost and then, his house. Uh, yeah. And then Shot he, himself twice. Well, the, And then, yeah, in 2004, his body was discovered with two gunshots to the head. Uh, there was, and it was officially ruled a suicide. There was a suicide note with him and... Uh, multiple gunshot to the head suicides are not unknown. Um, but uh, yeah, JFK a lot of, a killed lot of... himself with several shots to the head, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but uh, there, um, there, there are a lot of people who question the uh, accuracy of the suicide. Uh, Some say that Courtney loved it. Diagnosis. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Forget it, guys. It's San Jose. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, sort of to, let's go to fries. So to wrap <laughs> wrap this all up, this sort of uh, uh, we have like three or four. We have a lot of inside jobs here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, over overall, uh, I don't think I can ask you know Lee or me to sum up the inside jobness of this. But Gene, what what do you want to say? Which elements are inside jobs and which yeah. are well? I, know, the story of did did the CIA know? Uh, about the drug trade, or as they would later claim that, you know, they had a very disengaged um, relationship with the Contras, and just did it, all of this was happening under their nose. Um, I say that's impossible. Uh, just given the CIA's history, uh, you know, and the, the numerous testimonies that there were CIA agents almost present at the, you know, the major points of exchange. Uh, you know, particularly ensuring that all the money was going back to the Contras. Uh, mm-hmm. Like Blandone himself testified that there was an agent that would make sure that all the money they were getting 
no one was skimming off the top, you know? Yeah, wow. Um, so, yeah, in terms of did the CIA not necessarily, you know, trade the drugs themselves, but did they know that this was going on and allow it to happen, particularly calling off uh, police and DEA investigations? Yes, inside job. And then everything else is just sort of a a ripple in that. that yeah, uh, Iran-Contra, I mean, even Reagan admitted that even though he didn't believe it was an inside job, the evidence <laughs> <was>. said otherwise. <laughs> what, what he said, going back to that earlier, like what he said was that um, I wasn't aware of anything, but if there is anything that I wasn't aware of, I'm responsible for it, but it's their fault. So thank everyone for uh, for uh, staying with us for this kind of uh, kind of confusing story. I hope it was uh, it was uh, not impossible to follow. It's definitely confusing, even from trying to learn about it to to report on the show. And thank you very much, Gene. For uh, do you want to say the name of? Uh, yeah, that... if you want to learn more about this or other uh, CIA uh, drug trafficking collaborations, uh, such as in Afghanistan. Um, it's hard to find, but if you go, you probably find your local library. Uh, it's called Whiteout, the CIA Drugs in the Press by Alexander Cockburn. It's actually pronounced Coburn, I think. Um, by Alexander Coburn it's pronounced and Dickburn. Jeffrey, <laughs> Jeffrey St. Clair. Uh, very interesting and fun read. And then, uh, also I recommend checking out the VH1 documentary, uh, produced and narrated by Ice T, uh, Planet Rock. Is that what it's the called? The Jackson yeah. Five. Yeah, it's called Planet Planet Rock: The Story of Hip Hop and the Crack Generation. Crack and the Hip Hop Generation. Yeah, and that's on YouTube. That is uh, honestly uh, an incredible documentary. I thought yeah. that was really interesting. Uh, yeah, the, the VH1 presents will lead you to think otherwise, but it's actually a really cool documentary. And actually, VH1 did a lengthy series. It was like a multi-part series about just drugs and drug culture in the United States. And if you are you know, into spending several hours. That is also available on YouTube and it is also really well done series. Uh, they also play Staying on Alive on TV a lot. Yeah, sure. and it, it, it touches on a lot of the elements that we were talking about. Um, we, uh, we recently got an email from... Um, uh, we got an email? I know. Robert D. You didn't tell us? Des Moines, <laughs> Iowa. And he uh, wrote into uh, about uh, another drug episode that we did, the MK Ultra episode. And he uh, said that he really likes the show. And he uh, and I just want to say thank you to him. Give him a shout out for writing in because it was very nice to hear. And it always is nice to hear that people enjoy the show. Uh, if you want to email us about any element of the show, we are at InsideJobsCast at gmail.com. You can also uh, follow us on Twitter if you would like at inside jobs cast is our name there uh and our website insidejobscast.com has some uh, some supplemental material or you can just browse around and look at our older episodes is um, that uh, http that is <laughs> that is http yeah. colon slash slash insidejobscast.com no www do i need a cd from america online and my mom's permission to access this website yeah just go on CompuServe, and you should be able to downlink on to the www go on to prodigy.net we will be back in two weeks with a very interesting topic episode hosted by our own lee golden but until then follow the money
I think Freeway Ricky Ross was right to sue the rapper oh, okay. Rick Ross. Well, that's just because you sued the uh, Eugene O'Neill Literary Foundation. Yeah. No, they sued me <laughs> after Inside Jobs. <laughs> after Inside Jobs became so famous. Yeah. Um, 